everybody, I have one of my favorite people on the podcast today, my friend Gary Walkner from Colorado, his old colleague of mine from Waterkeeper Alliance days, and he is the Poudre Waterkeeper in Colorado, but he also spends a lot of time protecting the Colorado River, which is now in crisis. And Gary is a writer of articles, of books. He's won every award from every environmental group. He's got 20 pages of awards here. <laughs> More than anything, he's a river warrior. He's a waterman. He is a, a river runner, and he has spent his life trying to protect our waterways on behalf of our communities, our people, our culture, and, and our health. So welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you, Bobby. I appreciate that introduction. You know, I've had some good mentors in my life, including you, I might add. I appreciate that. That's very, very high praise. So, you know, I wanted you to come on just to talk about what's happening with the Colorado River. Colorado River water, millions and millions of people drink that in the Western states. The Colorado River is now in crisis. It's drying up, as you know. As you know, I made a film, the IMAX film with Wade Davis in 2008 about the Colorado River. And we took dories down the river. It was really an amazing trip. It's been seen, that film has been seen by 25 million people. Uh, but it was a contrast to me because I ran the river, I think the first time in 1964 with my dad. And at that time they were just completing, I think the Glen Canyon Dam. And so the river was still a wild river. It hadn't become a plumbing fixture yet. And the water was, it was warm. It was dirty, which is how it was supposed to be. There were seven species of native fish that were endemic that have all virtually disappeared. There were wide sandy beaches where you could camp almost anywhere. And that also has dramatically changed. And the river was full of water. Nobody was worrying about you know, the Colorado River drying up. The Colorado, as you know, is supposed to empty out into the Sea of Cortez between Baja, California, and the mainland of Mexico. And there are many, many animals, unique, beautiful animals, like the tiniest dolphin in the world, the Makita, that rely on that fresh water flow. And the problem is the Colorado now dries up in the desert and never reaches the ocean. Uh, and there is a huge human problem, too, is that there are so many of us rely for agriculture and our water and our health on those waterways. So uh, this was a longer introduction than I wanted to give, but take it away. Let's talk, talk to me about what's happening to the Colorado. Yeah, well, you certainly told part of the story there when Glen Canyon Dam started filling. And so, you know, at the time you didn't know it, but you were... You know, one of the last of the few years of people there to be able to run an actual wild, relatively free-flowing Colorado River. I actually just ran the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon back in October, and they had just, during my run on the river, they had sh shut down more water out of Glen Canyon Dam than they ever had before, and so it's possible that I got to see some of the highest flows that we may ever see again in the Grand Canyon. As you mentioned, the, the Colorado River is in an extreme 20-year drought. Yeah. Let me say something about that. I saw it when I was a kid. I saw a video that was taken from a helicopter. 
And it was a German or an Austrian guy who was the last guy to run the wild Colorado River. And it was amazing. And the, his boat was a little clever kayak that was made of canvas. And he was hitting standing waves that were 40 or 50 feet high. He was disappearing under them. It, you know, you would count and it seemed like he was gone for a full minute. And then he would reemerge and he would do a pirouette. And this is before people were doing toy boating, you know, and that kind of stuff. This guy was really unbelievable, an unbelievable athlete. And he made it down. And I understood that two or three weeks after that, ironically, he died by drowning in a bathtub. Hmm. But that was the last big water. And that water just doesn't exist there anymore because it all gets stuck behind the dam. Yeah, it all gets stuck behind the dams. And we have 20 years of extreme drought in the southwest United States. At the same time, there's been increasingly more dam building going on, if you can believe that or not. So one of the things my organization does is try to stop proposed new dams because the river is already in extreme crisis so that it doesn't get drained farther. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it used the river used to flow into the uh, Gulf of California, which is the Sea of Cortez. And there were 2 million acres of wetlands in the Colorado River Delta there across the Mexico border. It was wetlands as far as the eye could see. And I've stood there now and it is sand dunes as far as the eye could see. You know, Aldo Leopold, and one of the historic figures in American environmentalism, wrote a whole chapter of a book about uh, traveling through the Sea uh, of Cortez and the wetlands there. And he said it was a landscape of milk and honey as far as the eye can see. That's not there anymore at all. It's drained completely dry. You know, the, the big crisis, if you will, right now is that both of the main reservoirs in the district, uh, in the in the river, Lake Mead, which is backed up by Hoover Dam, and of course, Lake Powell, which is backed up by Glen Canyon Dam, are at historic lows right now. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which manages the system, or you might say mismanages the system, which is what I would say, had declared the first official shortage of water. So uh, entities, mostly farmers in Arizona, are being cut off this year and next year. And so there's going to be dramatic change in the Colorado River in the future. You know, what my organization tries to do throughout all that change is to look out for the ecological health of the river itself. Because, you know, as you know well, the human entities, the cities, and even the farmers, all the power and all the money and extraordinary lobbyists, but environmentalists are often the underdog. And so we do what we can to try to always keep one eye on the river's health and the health of the fishes and the health of the ecosystem so that it can still exist and even regenerate itself in the future. The people who follow this podcast are all familiar with the concept of agency capture. And the Bureau of Reclamation was kind of the original template for that, right? When the big corporate agriculture really got a hold of that agency. And it, it really is not a public service agency. It's an agency that serves the interests of this corporate elite. The, you know, the Bureau of Reclamation, as well as the seven basin states, which are Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico, Nevada, California, their entire goal is to drain the river dry every single year to literally destroy it. And what they don't drain and destroy, of course, Mexico does right at the border and takes every 
that are dro allowed to drop out of the river. So, you know, it, it's the concept of regulatory capture is, you know, extreme in the Colorado River Basin where entities that work for the water management, uh, the cities and the states, there's just a constant revolving door of them also working for the entities that like the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and the Department of Interior, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, we end up in this crazy situation where there really aren't watchdogs except for a few environmental groups. You know, everyone is kind of a lap dog, not a watchdog. And the entities that are supposed to fix the problem, and of course the problem is that the river is completely drained and the reservoirs are increasingly drained and they're already having to cut back. The entities that have to fix the problem are the very same people that have created the problem. So, you know, how do you think that's gonna go? Who, who's gonna look out for the health of the river itself in that equation, in that algorithm, if you will, it's going to be very difficult, but that's the work that we try to do. Tell us what happens. A lot of that water ends up going through Arizona and then it gets recycled, right? I think the, the water that we get in Los Angeles has actually been flushed down toilets in several Arizona cities and then recycled before it shipped us. Yeah, you know, it's it's a funny story. I mean, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, which gets water from the state, from the Colorado River. And you live in Santa Monica, California, which gets water from the Colorado River. In Santa Monica and in Southern California, you are drinking recycled water. You know, the interesting thing is you always hear about the controversy around water recycling, especially the concept of toilet to tap, because there are actual formal water recyclers there in Southern California, including there in San Diego, and a facility I've, I've toured. But if you live in Southern California, you're drinking, just think about this, you're drinking the wastewater of the entire city of Las Vegas. So imagine what goes down the drain in Las Vegas. Now, granted, they purify the water to EPA quality standards before it does it, but they do not purify out uh, pharmaceuticals. They do not purify out all sorts of things some and there's a variety of things that are difficult to purify out so you know that just flows down the Colorado River and gets diverted out by Southern California and, and away it goes to all the cities so there's lots of chaos for sure um, including Arizona which is recycled water. As you and I have spent you know 30 years suing sewage treatment plants when they test the water at the sewage treatment plant I mean you know the government makes the sewage plant test the water they're testing for a very limited number of parameters. They're testing for biological oxygen demand. They're testing for suspended solids, perceptible solids, or pH. And I think that's pretty much it. There may be one or two more. They're not testing for chemical residues. Oh, if you're a chemical residue, oh, some of them test for phosphorus and nitrogen but they're not testing for chemical residues. And when we went to the New York City, you know, upstate New York, there's 104 sewer plants that discharge into New York's drinking water in Westchester, Putnam, and counties in the Catskills. 104 sewage treatment plants, most of them are broken. But when we tested those plants independently, we found stuff coming out of there, their sewage stream that nobody ever measures, like huge amounts of caffeine, earth control pills, all kinds of, of hormones, and hundreds and hundreds of pharmaceutical drugs, because they're going right through the people into the toilet, and there is no system for removing that at the sewage treatment plant. 
The sewer plant, that whole agency, as you know, EPA is another victim of corporate capture. And the way that they avoid talking about all of these chemicals that are flowing into our drinking water is by simply not doing the tests that would show that they're there. Well, there's been you know numerous studies in the United States and even here in the state of Colorado where they've had some three-eyed fish downstream and they assume that it's because of all the pharmaceuticals that are or whatever that's been dumped into the water, which is anything you pour down the drain, really. You know, there was, as you recall, there was an old saying back in the 60s and 70s, the solution to pollution is dilution. And one of the fascinating things going on in the Colorado River right now is because there has been this extreme drought, there is much less water to dilute the pollution. So the amount of pollution stays the same every year. I'm not trying to pick on Las Vegas, but you know, gee, we've all been to Las Vegas and imagine what goes on in Las Vegas. Imagine everything that gets flushed down the drain. Well, that all stays the same every year, but the amount of water in the Colorado River and they need to dilute that actually goes down consequentially. It's like, it's like uh, one third of the water is in Lake Mead right now. Pollution is an issue for sure. You know, in addition to the dramatic crisis just around the, the amount of water of that, you know, you know, not only is there 40 million people on the Colorado River Basin that rely on it, it also grows crops in, in Southern Arizona, Southern California, and even Northern Mexico that, that feed you know, the entire nation too. And so um, you know, the ecological health of the river is threatened. There's pollution issues, and there's also extreme drought issues. Yeah. You know, one of the, I've seen studies that show that there may be that hint at an association between the amount of hormones that are now in our drinking water that are coming through this, you know, this reuse process that are associated with the lowering of the age of puberty in girls. Like two or three years, you're now getting 10-year-old girls who are hitting puberty, which was not what they're supposed to be doing. Nine, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. Yeah, I've seen similar studies around testosterone levels too. Um, so there's certainly a lot going on out there. You know, I, I would say, and you know, you and your audience will certainly understand this. We have laws and regulations in the United States, but they are weak as all there is to it. And they are only as strong as they are enforced. So you need organizations to enforce them. And, and they are, can only be enforced as strongly as the courts will allow. And so the United States is often thought of as having very strong environmental laws, but it's a very difficult situation out there. The courts can get stacked, the agencies can get captured, and organizations, you know, like ours, which are relatively small, it's very, very expensive, you know, to, to go to court, uh, especially if you have to have private attorneys. So there's a lot of challenges to trying to keep not just the environment protected, but also the public health. And Gary, your organization, the Poudre Waterkeeper, has recently launched for the Colorado a, a Rights of Nature campaign. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you bet. There's two big problems going on in the Colorado River Basin. And one, as we mentioned already, is that the laws are weak and they're difficult to enforce. So we need to make stronger laws. The second that's going on is as the amount of water increasingly goes down, investors, including Wall Street hedge funds and billionaires are buying massive farms and ranches, not because they want to be farmers or ranchers, but because they want to invest in the water, because the water is exorbitantly expensive right now in the southwestern United States. So we created a program called that's Rights the, of Nature. That's so that people understand. 
What a law in the West is irrational. It has the worst incentive system to incentivize bad behavior. And the reason for that, they have a system called first in time, first in right. Meaning if you arrive first in a Western state, you could use all the water out of the river that you saw fit and you permanently own the rights to that water. The incentive, the perverse incentives that come out of that is that if you stop using, if you reduce the amount of water that you're using through good conduct, through good practices, you can lose the right to that water and somebody else will get it. Oh, it incentivizes you to use the water as wastefully as possible for as long as possible to establish your right to those acre feet of water annually. And so the farms and ranches that own the rights to that water are enormously valuable, not because of the land, because the owner controls that water supply, which is now far more valuable than the land. And so you have Wall Street buying up the ranches that own these water rights. So that these big elites from Wall Street will control all the water in the West and they'll control life in the West. We see the same thing happen in the pharmaceutical industry and the agricultural industry, which is, you know, they're all becoming commodity businesses. Yeah, and you team me right up because what we are fighting against is the further commodification of water and of rivers. Because not only does the entity who owns the water right have the ability to take all the water that they have a right to, they have the ability to drain the river. And in many cases, rivers across the West and Southwest United States, including the Cashlapooda River in downtown Fort Collins, are drained bone stinking dry. And so it, it might be that that can happen for two or three days in a row sometimes. So anyway, we launched this Rights of Nature for Rivers campaign to slowly work to try to change laws to better protect the rivers in the state of Colorado and around the Southwest United States, and also to battle against this commodification where these people, they call themselves water marketeers. They're trying to turn it all into a big market. And then there's Wall Street hedge funds that are involved and also buyers and traders and, and all this kind of inside dealing going on around just trying to commodify the water to control it. And communities like Fort Collins, but a lot of communities around the West, literally don't have any control whatsoever over the river that flows through their town. So we're trying to work towards giving communities the ability to increase the laws and their ability to you know, create a healthy, vibrant river in their town and an ecosystem that people can go down to and enjoy, that they can recreate in, that they can fish in, that they can swim in. So these uh, ecosystems and rivers are alive rather than being commodified and sucked off so that you know, billionaires and hedge funds uh, even make more money. It is a real problem in the southwestern United States in the Colorado River Basin, where, again, you got more people, you got less water, the price of water is going up and up and up, and every investor in the United States is looking at it, including some really smart people on Wall Street. Yeah, so the people understand the historical antecedents of this. There was a period during the settlement of the West when Washington, D.C., in order to control the Indians, were often hostile to people taking their land, I don't know why, and also Mexico to keep Mexico, you know, because we were in a war over the land control of Mexico, 
We wanted to move a lot of Americans out onto that land. So we created this perverse incentive system. And it's different than how water is used in every other nation because most nations, local waterways are owned by the public. They're called public trust assets. They're part of the commons. And you can't use that water unless you can show a community benefit. The community can sell somebody, can license somebody to take the water, but the community still owns the water. And usually you have to make a determination if somebody wants it for a factory, that the factory is going to provide jobs and it's going to pay taxes and it's going to be a benefit to the community. So it's a way of communities of in democracies controlling the sovereignty of their land base. And this right which was an ancient right, but you know, during the Middle Ages, many of these local kings and feudal lords began privatizing the public trust, and that happened in England. And it was one of the reasons that the barons and the people rose up against King John and challenged him on the battle on the field of Runnymede and forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which was the Bethlehem for most of our Bill of Rights in our country. But in addition to the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution, Magna Carta also included rights to free access to waterways, to protection of the public interest in those ways so that they could not be commodified, they could not be stolen by wealthy people. There had to be a permit process that would make sure that everybody benefited from any dispatch of that resource of the Western system is a really undemocratic system. It's a system that rewarded traditionally this kind of what we call the welfare cowboys, this elite group who are uh, making money by cashing in on, on public resources and public wealth. And more recently, they've made the handoff to Wall Street. So you have the most rapacious, venal, craven, destructive and greedy people in the world, the people who literally have got their jobs because they're the greediest guy in the world. And they're the ones who now are buying up all the Western water and they are going to strangle those communities. And they turn the communities into feudal fiefdoms. It's exactly what, you know, our British ancestors fought the Magna Carta and that kind of feudal system. And we've installed that system in our Western states. Yeah, and you know, at the same time that that is going on, there's another fascinating thing going on in the West and the Southwest, especially, because there's kind of, you know, the old West, which was all about resource extraction, building dams, cutting down timber, et cetera, et cetera. And the new West is really much more about enjoying nature and a recreational economy and appreciating the health and vitality that being out in nature and a wild landscapes brings to you. And so a lot of communities around the Southwest United States are built along rivers as most communities are, and they're building whitewater parks, they're building huge parks and open spaces and recreation facilities so that people can raft in the river, can kayak in the river, et cetera. And so at the same time, you have this where the public, the public's values are towards appreciating, recognizing nature and knowing that is intrinsically useful and beneficial to us. But you have this massive, you know, corporate monetized commodified machine, which is trying to like take all the ability of the public away to um, get the benefits of public health. And so that tension is playing across you know, the southwest United States, especially in the Colorado River, especially as the amount of water in rivers continues to decrease. In addition, there's, there's fights for even more dams to be built. 
And so, um, you know, I can't, I, I apologize, I can't pay, uh, paste a, a very good story on the whole thing or, or put a happy face on it. But to say that there are groups like mine that are in there every day fighting to try to keep, to protect the public self and to protect the ecological health of the non-human world that we depend on for our survival. Ari, how can our listeners support your efforts? The best thing to do is go to savethecolorado.org, savethecolorado.org. We're working hard. We got a number of programs on there that you can read about. My email's right on there and you can give me a call or, or send me an email. We're happy to accept donations and include you in the community of people that are trying to protect the public health and protect the environment rather than and against the, the raiders and the, the corporate behemoths that are trying to destroy. Gary Walkner, Audrey Waterkeeper, Save the Colorado. Thanks so much for joining us and for your commitment to our waterways. All right, thank you, Bobby. Good to see you again. You too. Good to see you, David. Say hi to Cheryl for me. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Bobby.